everyone. Welcome back to all my listeners. Hope you're all having a great day so far. And if it's your first time finding me, thanks so much and welcome. Welcome to episode 15 of my third season. Today is Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. My name is Sonal Patel, and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Now, the nights here are already turning cooler. What? I know, I know, it's still mid-August, but it is the Midwest. So, yep, I know fall will soon be here. Thank goodness it's my very favorite season, although it never quite lasts long enough for me. Anyways, now today's solo session is packed. Once again, it's filled with relevant healthcare industry news and all my compliance tips. Now, I'm going to keep on poking into improving hospice compliance. This week, I get into a very recent audit conducted by the Office of Inspector General. This episode also highlights the newsworthy OIG work plan for July 2021. And I round out today's episode with a remarkable note on journeys from our former First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. If you checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations, to want to dive in deeper, to use my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve coding accuracy as you help your providers paint the medical picture. If you like what you're hearing, go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss another episode. Please write in a review and drop me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to my podcast. I'd really love your support. As always, a friendly disclaimer. Remember, I'm bringing you the news, current healthcare industry news, my compliance tips and recommendations based on my over 10 years of experience in front office, back end, coding, and billing for multi-specialty physicians, compliance, and auditing for both ENM and surgical operative reports. These are my opinions alone and are not to be construed as legal advice. So let's get into Newsworthy. I wanted to go over the five new July 2021 updates made to the OIG work plan. The first is titled Audit of State's Administration of SAMHSA's Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment Block Grant Funding. Now, it's an audit from the Office of Audit Services. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, has the Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment Block Grant program, and it's the largest federal program dedicated to improving publicly funded substance abuse prevention and treatment systems. Now, the program provides funds to all of our 50 states, the District of Columbia, and the U.S. territories to prevent and treat substance abuse. Federal requirements for the SABG program state that fiscal control and accounting procedures must permit the tracing of those funds to a level of expenditure adequate to establish that these funds were not used in violation of block grant restrictions and statutory prohibitions. And you can find that in 45 CFR section 96.30. Now, the OIG will determine whether the state's SABG expenditures 
for subrecipients, including expenditures for contracted transactional, transitional, excuse me, housing providers complied with federal and state requirements. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2022. Now, the second OIG work plan update for July 2021 is titled State's Oversight of Medicaid Managed Care Medical Loss Ratios. Now, this is an audit from the Office of Evaluation and Inspections. Now, medical loss ratio, or MLR, requirements in Medicaid managed care provide a method for addressing state and federal concerns about growth in Medicaid spending. Now, federal MLR requirements are intended to ensure that Medicaid managed care plans spend most of the Medicaid capitation payments received from states on beneficiaries' medical care, which limits the amount plans can spend on administration and keep as profit. Now, pursuant to the May 2016 Medicaid Managed Care Final Rule, states must include requirements in managed care plan contracts for plans to calculate MLR percentages and report those percentages and related underlying data to the states. Now, states' collections of complete and accurate MLR data from their managed care plans provide a critical first step for determining Medicaid managed care MLR performance nationwide. Complete and accurate MLR data also enable states to set appropriate managed care payment rates to control Medicaid costs. Now, in this work, the OIG will determine two things. One, they want to determine whether states receive all required MLR data from their plans. And second, they want to examine the state's oversight of Medicaid managed care plans compliance with MLR requirements. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2022. Now, the third OIG work plan update for July 2021 is titled Audit of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health Program. Now, this analysis is stemming from the Office of Audit Services. Now, the Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health, also called REACH, program is administered by the CDC, which awards funds to state and local health departments, tribes, universities, and community-based organizations to improve health, prevent chronic diseases, and reduce health disparities among racial and ethnic populations with the highest risk of chronic disease. Now, in fiscal year 2018, the CDC awarded $125.5 million in REACH funds to 31 recipients for a five-year project period, which began on September 30th of 2018 with one-year awards, which averaged $780,000 per recipient. Now, grant recipients work with communities to reduce health disparities among racial and ethnic populations with the highest burden, again, of chronic disease like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. Now, the program provides culturally tailored interventions to address preventable risk behaviors, including tobacco use, poor nutrition, and physical inactivity. REACH grant recipients are required to work with one or two of the following priority populations. African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians or other Pacific Islanders, and American Indians 
or Alaska natives. Now, recipients are also required to work in three of the following four strategic areas, tobacco, nutrition, physical activity, and community clinical linkages. And their accompanying activities to improve social and environmental conditions for better health in the community. Now, the OIG will determine whether selected REACH grant recipients use their funding in accordance with federal requirements and grant terms. Specifically, the OIG plans to audit REACH program funds awarded to the selected recipients to ensure that REACH program funds were used for their intended purposes and met the needs of priority populations. This final report is expected in fiscal year 2022. Now, the fourth OIG work plan update for July 2021 is titled NIH's Oversight Processes to Ensure Diversity Among Human Subjects Enrolled in Clinical Trials. Now, this review is from the Office of Evaluation and Inspections. Underrepresentation of racial and ethnic minorities, women, and individuals of all ages in clinical trials has been a long-standing concern and has garnered increased attention due to the COVID-19 pandemic's disproportionate impact on minority populations. Now, the NIH, our National Institutes of Health, is the largest funder of biomedical and public health research, and they support over $31 billion of research across the agency. Now, the NIH's responsibilities include reviewing annual progress reports that document grantees' progress toward NIH-approved enrollment plans, which may include a diversity and inclusion component. This study will assess and describe how NIH monitors and ensures enrollment of racial and ethnic minorities, women, and individuals of all ages within the clinical trials it funds, and the actions it takes in the responses to clinical trials that are not meeting approved enrollment plans. Now, this study will also identify the NIH's challenges and the steps it takes to address these challenges while monitoring and ensuring that its grantees meet their commitments to inclusive enrollment in their clinical trials. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2022. Now, the final 5th July 2021 OIG work plan update is titled Home Health Agency's Emergency Communication Plans, Strengths and Challenges, Ensuring Continuity of Care During Disasters. Now, this analysis will be conducted by the Office of Evaluation and Inspections. The COVID-19 pandemic highlighted the importance of emerging infectious disease preparedness, or EID, in healthcare facilities, including our home health agencies, or HHAs. Now, the OIG's ongoing work in reviewing HHA preparedness for EIDs. However, HHAs must also prepare for other types of emergencies. Natural disasters such as hurricanes, floods, and fires continue to threaten operations, even as our home health agencies continue to address the impact of COVID-19. Now, in 2020, the U.S. experienced a record number of natural disasters, and federal scientists predict a greater number of hurricanes and storms in 2021. Previous natural disasters highlighted vulnerabilities in home health agencies' preparedness for disasters, specifically with regards to communication and continuity of care. 
Now, since November of 2017, our HHAs have had to comply with CMS emergency preparedness conditions of participation. And as part of these emergency preparedness conditions of participation, CMS requires our home health agencies to develop communication plans that must include information necessary to ensure continuity of care during any emergency. This evaluation will determine our home health agency's compliance with these emergency preparedness conditions of participation and will report factors that these home health agencies identify as hindering or supporting the continuity of care during a disaster. This final report is expected in fiscal year 2023. So, my goodness, right? The OIG never tire. They never stop working. They're always working on a myriad of audits and inspections, despite, again, this over year and a half public health emergency state that we're all enduring. So in my opinion, I always, always pass this critical information on to providers who need it to review their coding and billing practices or overarching compliance programs. I think these reports with findings are always most interesting and informative, and I always look forward to analyzing them in the years ahead. It's also important for my listeners to pay attention to these monthly OIG work plan updates to see how they may impact you, your provider, or your health system. And now, it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. I continue focusing my attention on hospice compliance. Let's unpack some details on a July 2021 Medicare hospice provider compliance audit. Now, the OIG had sampled 100 claims from a particular hospice. Now, of those 100 claims sampled, 66, in fact, complied with Medicare requirements. So that's not too shabby, right? A 66% accuracy rate. But, however, the remaining 34 claims did not comply with Medicare requirements. And those 34 are what I'd like to talk about. Now, specifically, for 33 out of those 34 claims, the clinical record did not support the beneficiary's terminal prognosis. Now, for one of those 34 claims, the clinical record did not support the level of care billed to Medicare. And in addition, OIG reports that for a few claims it reviewed, there was in fact no evidence that patients elected hospice care before the periods covered by the sampled claims, nor was there support, documentation support, for the physician's services billed to Medicare. Now, even further, OIG is claiming improper payment of these claims occurred because it was the hospice's lack of compliance, right? Their policies and procedures were not effective in ensuring three things. Now, number one, the hospice's compliance policies and procedures were not effective in ensuring that the clinical documentation it maintained supported the terminal illness prognosis. And second, the hospice's policies and procedures on compliance were not effective in ensuring that election statements by patients were signed before the periods covered by the sampled claims. 
And finally, third, the hospice's policies and procedures in compliance were not effective in ensuring the appropriate level of care was billed to Medicare, nor did they ensure that physician services were in fact supported in clinical documentation. So on the basis of these OIG sample results, the OIG estimated that this particular hospice received at least $10.5 million in unallowable Medicare reimbursement for hospice services. Now, I'm not going to bore you or myself with all of the statistical sampling mumbo jumbo, but I do want to talk about these three OIG findings in detail because this is the compliance piece, in my opinion. This is where we must do better to ensure our clinical documentation supports what Medicare wants to support the services rendered. Now, the first is for Medicare requirements for hospice status. Now, I know I've talked about this in previous trustee tips in season three, but let's go over this again. Now, to be eligible for the Medicare hospice benefit, a beneficiary must be certified as a terminally ill patient. Beneficiaries are entitled to receive hospice care for two 90-day benefit periods, followed by an unlimited number of 60-day benefit periods. Now, at the start of the initial 90-day benefit period of care, the hospice must obtain written certification of the beneficiary's terminal illness from the hospice medical director or the physician member of the hospice interdisciplinary group, that IDG, and the individual's physician, attending physician, if they happen to have one. Now, for subsequent benefit periods, a written certification from the hospice medical director or the physician member of that hospice IDG is, again, required. Clinical information and other documentation that supports the patient's medical prognosis must accompany the physician's certification and be filed and maintained in the medical record with the written certification of their terminal illness. Now, payment may be made for hospice care provided to an individual if the individual makes an election to receive hospice care. Beneficiaries eligible for the Medicare hospice benefit may elect hospice care by filing a signed election statement with a hospice. This election statement must include two things. Number one, the individual's acknowledgement that he or she has been given a full understanding of the palliative care and services rather than the curative nature of hospice care. And number two, the effective date of hospice care must be no earlier than the date of the election statement. Now, hospices, again, must maintain clinical records for each and every beneficiary, such as a signed copy of the election statement. No Medicare payment shall be made to any provider unless it has furnished the information necessary to determine the amount due. And that, of course, is referenced in our Social Security Act, Section 1815A. Now, Medicare reimbursement for hospice services is made at predetermined payment rates, right? It's based on the level of care provided. Now, for each day that a beneficiary is under the hospice's care, there are four levels of care. The first is for routine home care, or RHC. The second level of care is GIP, 
or general inpatient care. The third is inpatient respite care. And fourth is CHC or continuous home care. Now our GIP care, that general inpatient care is provided in an inpatient facility for pain control or acute or chronic symptom management that cannot be managed in other settings, such as the patient's home. And it's only intended to be short-term. And then routine home care is of course the least expensive level of hospice care, followed by inpatient respite care, and then GIP care, and then CHC care for the continuous home care, which is the most expensive level of hospice care. Now, the second OIG finding is for that terminal prognosis not supported, right? So for 33 of those 100 sampled claims, the clinical record provided by this hospice did not support the associated beneficiary's terminal prognosis. Specifically, the independent medical review contractor, that auditor, determined that the records for these claims did not contain sufficient clinical information, and other documentation to support the medical prognosis of life, expect life expectancy of six months or less if the terminal illness ran its course. Now, in addition, for two of these 33 claims, there was no evidence that either the beneficiary elected hospice care by signing an election statement before the period covered by the sampled claim. And then for the first claim, the hospice stated that, unfortunately, it could not locate the election statement. So that's unfortunate. And then for the second claim, the hospice again, unfortunately stated and declared that it could not locate the statement that was signed and dated approximately only 16 months after the period covered by the sampled claim. So again, that's unfortunate. Further, for one of these 33 claims, this hospice billed Medicare for a physician service that was not supported by the beneficiary's clinical record. And finally, third, that third OIG finding is for the level of care not supported. So the OIG sample contained one claim for which the hospice billed Medicare at the GIP level of care, that inpatient, right, which has a higher payment rate. However, the beneficiary's clinical record did not support the need for that level of care billed. And that auditor, the independent medical review contractor, determined that the beneficiary did not have pain nor symptoms that required that higher level of GIP care. The beneficiary's hospice care needs could have been met if the hospice had provided services at the less expensive routine level of care. Now, for the same sampled claim, the hospice billed Medicare for some physician services that were not supported by the beneficiary's clinical record. Wow. So, in fact, they're not purporting that in that particular service was not provided. They're simply stating that that level of care could be reimbursed at the lower level of payment rate of routine level care. So they're not stating that there was no evidence that the care treatment was provided. Yes, it was provided, but unfortunately it was reimbursed at the higher level of GIP care. So as I go over reports like this and in the auditing work that I do, 
I truly, truly do believe that the organization of medical records and clinical documentation is a must. I think there's a lot of pitfalls when the medical records are simply submitted in a hodgepodge jumble style. I know for a fact that I receive information like this from providers in a hodgepodge jumble, but I take the time to organize the records in a readable fashion to the auditor on the payer side, to that independent medical review contractor on the other side. Um, so they cannot refute the facts that we did provide all of the clinical documentation that Medicare asked for. And it is always best, best practice, just like in this hospice's case, they admitted where their downfalls were, right? They admitted that in these two claims, yes, they could not find the patient's election statement in one of those cases. And in the second case, they admitted that the signature was only provided 16 months after that particular claim period. So I always do believe that it's best to fess up, own up to where your deficiencies lie, but submitting organize, organized records, um, drafting appeals that are well thought out using the evidence that CMS has provided in their audit request letters, and then submitting those particular records right up front so their auditor on that side can look very closely at that documentation that was requested because it's right there. It's not buried in the jumble, in the hodgepodge mixture of records. It's right there up front for the auditor to look at, and then they have very little to refute. So I always think that's best practice. And I do agree that in this particular case, there was some mix up, but um, I don't know the exact facts and details to support the fact that they owe ten and a half million dollars in overpayment. But again, I'm not the auditor on this case, but there's so much we can do that I do believe we need to improve our workflows and our efficiencies, right? They can always, always use improvements and updates to compliance programs are a must. They must be living, breathing, active programs that can effectively maintain change from quarter to quarter, from year to year, and disclose deficiencies and then implement corrective action plans so that the government is aware that you are on top of it. You're on top of these changes in your practice and you are doing your very, very best to maintain compliance that follow Medicare guidelines. So a better, smarter approach is one that's proactive and starts by painting a clear, rich, and vibrant medical picture the first time so your certified medical coder can then abstract codes with accuracy. And finally, in this week's inspiring quote in Spark is from our former first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. The purpose of life is to live it, to taste experience to the utmost, to reach out eagerly and without fear for a newer and richer experience. 
Absolutely true, right? I think this is an amazing quote about journeys. I agree wholeheartedly. The greater purpose of life is to walk through it, really savoring each and every moment, remembering all of those stumbles and falls. After all, it takes character and fortitude to get back up. No fear. Get back up. Shake that confidence in you back to full steam ahead and dive in. Dive into a new path, a new chapter, a new journey that life has in store for you. I'm happy Eleanor Roosevelt's spark still shines on in all of us today. So that wraps up today's episode. Please go out and make this a great day, an incredible week for yourselves. Aim a little higher, do a little more, and give back in any way you can in 2021. There's so much each one of us can do. As always, I appreciate you diving into today with me. And if you want more information from me, go ahead and follow me on LinkedIn. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Please continue staying safe and healthy. This Delta variant still lingers here and is causing way, way too much havoc in its wake. So please get yourself vaccinated and keep masking up, washing up, and staying physically distant. We are not free of this beast yet. We're still living life in the time of coronavirus. But enjoy what's left of your summertime. Take time out. Take mental health days. Carve moments each day for yourself to just breathe, to simply be. Thank you so much for listening in on today's episode. And I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday. 